0: several occasions during the hundred episodes of series eight on artificial intelligence and chatbots, I somewhat ruefully observed that one of the biggest problems that the chatbots have is that they don't know the rule when in holes stop digging. Indeed, if they make a mistake in their coding, they are more than likely to compound that mistake by adding to it rather than scrapping it and starting again and this habit which they have got in spades as we say is one that causes considerable difficulty especially in areas of coding but it's a, a, a habit that is in a sense inevitable because of the nature of the chatbot architecture. Which, let me just briefly remind you, consists of taking what they've already got, encoding it, creating an embedding for it, using that encoding and embedding in the circumstances defined by the neural net that contained their long-term permanent training, and using all those things together to decide what comes next. And the trouble is that what comes next doesn't seem to include erasing what went before. Not even a little bit. They will say sorry for the confusion or apologies for the confusion if you point out a mistake. But they will very rarely withdraw it, they will simply add to it, compound it if you like. As a result of a process that you could call complexification. So if you're not careful as a user the chatbot will give you more and more unintelligible code in which it piles complexity on top of complexity in a desperate attempt to get rid of a problem that would disappear if we simply rubbed out, removed the first suggestion that it made, return to a previous stable working state and start it again from there, exploring what we've called the counterfactual conditionals that emanate from that point rather than adding ever more complexity to the path that we've already followed. My reason for rehearsing that apart from the fact that I think that it's very important and that the chatbots that I've conversed with still seem to have this problem and it's difficult to see how they can escape it given the way they are designed. The reason I mention it is because it strikes me or did strike me in reading some of the physics papers on quantum field theory, that physics could be guilty of more or less the same thing. The most egregious examples of unintelligibility that you're likely to come across can be found in some of the papers on quantum field theory. And I acknowledge absolutely that I am not competent in these fields, but I just notice things getting more and more intricate more and more abstract, more and more difficult at least for me and I found myself wondering is this the chat GPT syndrome all over again that physics finds it very difficult to start again, to erase its mistakes, to say this has become such a conceptual horlicks that what we should really be doing is looking for a new foundation. Well, You're bound to say, but physicists do look for new foundations, and those are, of course, things like string theory or some of the things that they're doing, whose name has instantly escaped me, that I came across recently, that change the basis of the way they do mathematics by observing that the physics requires a new mathematics or it simply can't start. And we already have... Uh, acknowledged on I think both sides that the way physicists use mathematics is, as I said a few episodes ago, more as a language through which to communicate the concepts that they're employing rather than, as tends to be the case with a mathematician, a rational, logical structure in which you derive, prove, establish theorems permanently. A physicist is much more likely to write something down rather as you and I might write the cat sat on the mat except that the physicist will say something about the integral overall paths of the exponent of the complex action divided by the modified Planck's constant but it's not really much different from that in that there isn't much by way of explanation. Now, of course, the explanation does exist and it does lie elsewhere, but even then, it very often consists of quite a lot of argument, usually couched in ordinary language, well, not very ordinary, but certainly the language of physics that gives rise to a formula that says what the physicist wants to say. And as some physicists particularly some of the best ones, like Ed Witten, have admitted part of the problem that they've got, physicists have, or perhaps it's mathematicians and physicists have, in their communication, is that the mathematicians want to do things with these formulae, these theories, that the physicists don't really accommodate, because the way the physicists express themselves doesn't naturally give rise to the kind of logico-deductive axiom systems that mathematicians really live for sometimes die for. So a mathematician looking at a statement like uh, the sum of the, the total probability of a particle moving from its initial to its final space-time coordinates in path integral terms is the integral over all paths of the exponential action in some version a mathematician will look at that and say and why is that the case asking for a derivation and as I say although the derivation may exist somewhere most of the physics papers that you'll read don't contain those derivations you need to go right back several layers of the onion need to be peeled before you can find a paper that establishes the thing that the higher level paper simply takes for granted. And that's not a criticism, that's how language works. After all, the whole of language is really a complex of abbreviations. I could For example, instead of saying I'm walking along a country path in Norfolk, which I am, could start with the uh, DNA of grass, the structure and chemical processes involved in photosynthesis, the intentions of farmers and the histories of people who have preserved public rights of way in the English countryside, and that would make the whole thing considerably more heavy, verbose, wouldn't probably convey any more in the end than saying I'm walking along a country path in Norfolk. So I'm walking along a country path in Norfolk is just an abbreviation, for a whole universe of potential things that could be said instead And the sort of thing that you find in a physics paper is pretty much in that category. It is an abbreviation of possibly a hundred thousand man years, person years, physicist years of thinking and working and struggling that have been done by innumerable people before they eventually uh, distilled down into a simple single-line statement such as Feynman gave us that defines the path integral in terms of a single integral. Having said that, there is obviously the problem with which I started this episode which is that a lot of these formulae are couched in terms that have intrinsic problems. They may be problems of infinity because they get too big by virtue of becoming too big or there may be problems of infinity that arise indirectly as a result of something going to zero which makes something else go to infinity problems of divergence or non-convergence of integrals and the difficulty for everybody is that as soon as you move from finite to infinite and you really do need to particularly in the mathematics of measure theory as soon as you do that you are potentially in trouble and so what tends to happen and this can be seen in some of the renormalization work that's been done that upset Paul Dirac and Richard Feynman Both of whom were critical of it, despite the fact that Feynman had made a pretty major contribution to the dilemma with his path integral formulation. They were both very critical of it, suggested that there was something that we'd missed somewhere that we needed a a better theory in which a lot of these singularities simply wouldn't arise. But nevertheless, such is the, such is the momentum of the traditional way of doing it, albeit less than a hundred years old, that what we do instead is essentially what the chatbot does. We just layer upon add, layer upon layer of complexification in the hope that we can somehow renormalize and remove some of the difficulties. And of course this has the effect of taking it further and further away from normal intuition so that the attempt to think quantum that I mentioned and three ways of trying to do it in episode 20 just becomes that much more difficult. So when I read papers and find, as I do sometimes, that I understand barely one percent I partly berate myself for my ignorance, which is profound as I demonstrate with every episode that I publish but i more worry that something's going on here that's really deeply pathological that we somehow feel the need to persist with what we've got a bit like the chatbot basing everything upon looking backwards and that the past uh, you can see it coming can't you and that the past therefore that we are trying to remain consistent with involves backwards compatibility of a kind that reduces software to virtual immobility because you can't go forward and remain faithful to everything. I mentioned uh, the distinction between Apple and Microsoft and Raspberry Pi and other things long time ago now but this, this demand for backward compatibility, this reluctance to cut ourselves free, this reluctance to cut the Gordian knot, as Alexander the Great did, simply say, enough of this nonsense, um, we don't do it. And so we lumber ourselves with a vast, What it really is vast, a vast conceptual apparatus that every new physicist has somehow to come to terms with at the expense of making it almost completely incomprehensible to almost everybody. Um, How many people in the world there are that can really read an Ed Witten paper and understand it, I don't know, but I'm not one of them. And I gather that some of the other people at the Institute for Advanced Study find it the same. But So the, the, the issue becomes, are we trying to save the appearances? Are we looking backwards and attempting to remain consistent with, compatible with, everything we've ever done in the way that you might if you were writing software for Windows 11 that needs still to run on machines that respect DOS and all this sort of stuff. Or, or should we be more like Apple, who have lifetimes for their software and basically say, well, if you've still got an iPhone 6, I'm afraid you're not going to get more than legacy software, we'll maintain version, I don't know what it would be iOS 11 which ran on it, but we're not going to go on trying to make iOS 16 and 17 run on it because to do so we would need so to compromise what iOS 16 and 17 can do that we would effectively be tying one handle, if not both, behind our backs and so although it's annoying, I'm, I've made exactly the point before, how annoying to have to keep buying new hardware. The reality is that that's the only way progress can be achieved. But that's progress that the chatbots, at least as presently incarnated, don't really seem very good at. And I'm suggesting that there is an element in quantum field theory that is similarly immobilized. And of course it wouldn't be a complete episode without a reference to Shestov and the head of Medusa Because this is exactly the point that he's making. That we look backwards, we stare upon the face of Medusa and the inertia turns us to stone. We can't do anything anymore because we're still trying to be faithful to something that has already outlived its usefulness. It's got past its sell-by date. So... When somebody comes along with something new, as they must do from time to time, whether it be special and general relativity, quantum theory, maybe string theory, or some of the other things whose name has momentarily escaped me that I was reading about just recently, when these things come along, they of course all have to live in the intellectual media where the conceptual scaffolding, the conceptual apparatus needed to make sense of them, isn't present in many minds in the world. The the people who derive these things, you know, who invent string theory, who invent general relativity, who invent quantum theory, they're at the head of the game. They have a head start over other people. Other people encountering this for the first time have to play catch up and of course a lot of the time this uh, need to change your conceptual framework creates a lot of hostility and people find themselves rejected as did those who initially rejected things like uh, monarchy, the divine right of kings, the rights of rulers, the uh, authority of the church, the existence of God, all of these people and many, many, many more besides Darwin rejecting the Aristotelian view and with it the church's view and all the difficulties of emergent life forms and so on and life on other worlds and all of these places where our most cherished Presuppositions get challenged, and rightly so. Well, we can always hide behind not every challenge is a good challenge, not every new idea is a good idea. Yes, of course we can. But we can't hide behind the idea that everything that has ever been, ever will ever need to be said, has in some embryonic form already been said, because that would be to turn and face the past, and allow it, like the head of Medusa, to turn us to stone. It would to bore you with it, but it's uh, such a central idea, be just like the uh, Semper Perere Simul jubere." decide once, obey forever, that Shestov reminds us about again and again and again, and I remind you about again and again and again. We have to be ready to change our minds. We have to be ready for reconceptualization. We have to be ready to say, Well, until now, I believed this, thought this, felt that this was definitive in our universe. But then, like Job, in that most powerful of phrases at the end of the book, hitherto, I heard with my ears, but now I have seen with my eyes, and I will repent in dust and ashes. And the point of that, uh, stripped of its theological clothing, or you can't do that of course in the context of the book, but stripped of its theological clothing is that we hang on to things from the past, our prior conceptualisation, we hang on to them, so long, too long, well beyond their use-by date, because the, the work that we need to do to create the new conceptual frameworks that are necessary to appreciate the power of the new ideas takes ages and is very, very hard. And what's more, it's not just hard in the sense of requiring a lot of time and concentration, but we find ourselves emotionally compromised and emotionally compromised in ways that affect people for example who don't lose their faith in god but signally refuse any longer to buy into this mythology who change their minds force themselves out of a frame of mind in which something that is no longer intellectually credible or tenable is controlling how they think and we've got to do the same and we have done it before we did it as I never tire of reminding you we did it eventually over Copernicus, Galileo and their fight with the Roman Catholic Church and not just the Roman Catholic Church we shouldn't pretend that Lutheranism and Calvinism were any more friendly towards this idea than, than the Catholics were but Copernicus and Galileo, then of course with the Philosoph, the French Philosoph in the 18th century who basically rubbished the whole notion of God and the beliefs that the Church was using to control people. And then with Darwin in the 19th century who dispensed with the literalist interpretation of the Scriptures And then with Einstein, well, I mean, in physics, the number of examples is endless, but Einstein, Bohr, Heisenberg, Dirac, and in the modern era, Feynman and the like. All of this involves throwing away things that no longer fit. And I speak hypocritically here because I'm one of the world's worst squirrels But I have got a whole shelf, well more than a shelf, a filing cabinets full of stuff that I've written that I would now, if I ever pulled it out, which I don't regard as errant nonsense, but on the principle of not burying your your waste paper baskets, I haven't actually consigned it to the flames, although that's probably the best thing that could be done. And I will conclude this. The, The theme here which is very much uh, implicit in episode 20 about changing our minds, about getting new conceptual tools, learning to think quantum by thinking differently. I'll conclude this with a a story that I very much like from, I think it was Charles Wesley, one of the founders of what became Methodism, who said that he burnt all his sermons once every seven years because it was a crying shame if he couldn't preach better sermons seven years later than he'd preached seven years before. And I'm assuming that he means that that was a rolling process in which he gradually removed things that were seven years old rather than taking a whole seven years, I don't know Uh, it might be here or there but it it still has a a certain poetic and symbolic quality that we've got to learn to give up to relinquish to forget to allow the past to go to let it go because if it does if we don't then it will fixate us, it will attract our gaze and it will turn us to stone as surely as the Medusa would have turned Perseus was it to stone? Or was it Theseus? I can't remember, that just goes to show what happens when you repeat a story without ever going back to looking at the original, whatever. Um, The Medusa will turn us to stone because the past will turn us to stone and what we have been will turn us to stone if we try always to remain consistent with it. We have to learn to move on and not be like the chatbot digging ever deeper holes to try to get out of the ones that it's already in and that I think some physicists and probably mathematicians are signally guilty of. Thank you for listening.